Sunday school children are leaving us for their various classes. And while they're doing that, let's open the scriptures to Jonah chapter 4. We're going to come into land after a five-message series on the book of Jonah. So we'll turn to Jonah chapter 4 and we'll commence reading at verse 1. But it greatly displeased Jonah and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord and said, Please, Lord, was not this what I said while I was still in my own country? Therefore, in order to forestall this, I fled to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, and the one who relents concerning calamity. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for death is better to me than life. The Lord said, Do you have good reason to be angry? Verse 5, Then Jonah went out from the city and sat east of it, and there he made a shelter. For himself and sat under it in the shade until he could see what would happen in the city. So the Lord appointed a plant and it grew up over Jonah to be a shade over his head to deliver him from his discomfort and Jonah was extremely happy about the plant. But God appointed a worm when dawn came the next day and it attacked the plant and it withered. And when the sun came up, God appointed a scorching east wind. And the sun beat down on Jonah's head so that he became faint and begged with all his soul to die, saying, Death is better to me than life. Verse 9, Then God said to Jonah, Do you have good reason to be angry about the plant? And he said, I have good reason to be angry even to death. Then the Lord said, You had compassion on the plant for which you did not work, which you did not cause to grow, which came up overnight and perished overnight. Should I not have compassion on Nineveh, the great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know the difference between the right hand and the left, as well as many animals? May God add a blessing to his word. And as Jordan prayed, may we take heed to this word this morning and may the Spirit of God impress it, this whole story of Jonah, on our hearts and minds so that we may obey the truth. And so this morning we come to a kind of a, an abrupt ending of, of how Jonah responds to God's sovereign mercy on the city of Nineveh and also how God responds to him. But as we saw last week, Jonah really did something, didn't he? Man, he did something. We saw how God gave this reluctant missionary, we'll call him, a second chance by calling him a second time to do what God wanted him to do in the first place. And Jonah, this recalcitrant missionary, did exactly what the Lord called him to do. He preached God's impending judgment on the city of Nineveh. And as a result, approximately 600,000 people believed and repented. The whole city pleaded for God's mercy. And as we suggested, this was the greatest revival in all of redemptive history. I don't know if anything else has happened like that. Towns and maybe, but not cities of this magnitude. 
But although Jonah was initially disobedient, and as a result of that disobedience, we'll remember as we looked at verse one, chapter 1 there, as a result of his disobedience, he experienced God's disciplining hand upon him, didn't he? Big time. And then he experienced God's miraculous, undeserved deliverance. So even with all this miraculous happening around him, Jonah lost sight of something vitally important. He lost sight of what God was really doing through all this. You see, folks, God did not only work through Jonah in the city of Nineveh, but he had to do a work in Jonah. Jonah lost sight of this. His his focus was on what God had done and was doing through him. And he was blinded to what God wanted to do in him. Dear people, the same is true of each one of us here this morning. It is. God has more work to do in you, in me, than he has to do through us. God's most important work is done by his Holy Spirit through the Word of God, the Word of the Spirit, the Word of Christ, aided often by the circumstances of life in exposing, here it is, this is what he does, he exposes his heart to us. That's what God does. In other words, God works in our hearts by showing us his heart. That's what he's doing here this morning, by the way. We need to see this morning that as God gave Jonah a second chance, he also gives us the same. As evidence, might I say, by you being here this morning. We don't believe in chance, right? Not the way the world believes it. God is sovereign. He knows everything. He gives us another chance, another opportunity this morning to see his heart so that we might repent and align our whole thinking, our whole being, our hearts more aligned to his heart than it ever has been before. And I just love how this whole narrative here begins and ends in Jonah. It begins, as we saw in chapter 1, with God and Jonah, right? There they are. And then what does Jonah do? How does he respond? He tries to run. And then soon it involves some others, which were the sailors in the, sh- in the boat. And then it involved, as the story went on, we come to chapter 3, it involved the Ninevites. But right at the end, it's back to square one. God and Jonah. Again. The literary experts would call this the chiastic structure of the book of Jonah. You know, it starts one way and it ends the same way and in the middle it's got a peak. Well, this is how it is. But this is how it always is, right? Even with our lives, this is how it is. God gives us work to do, it involves other people, but in the end it's back to square one where it's just us and God where we are personally exposed to, to, to God's heart. This is where, by the way, our attitudes, our motives, our faithfulness are open and laid bare to the 
omniscient gaze of God. And in those times, what we do, we, we should do, we evaluate and measure them, all these things, all our heart, all our motives, in the light of God's perfect holiness. Well, this is where Jonah was and is exactly in this chapter. He was back to square one. And is being divinely measured, can we call it, by God's heart of compassion and love. And this divine measuring all took place when Jonah was exposed to God's heart toward the pagans of Nineveh. Jonah's anger at God's compassion, this is what we see in verses 1 to 3. And so why was he angry? Well, it all came to a head for Jonah because of what God had done. And the last verse of chapter 3 reads this, when God saw their deeds, that's when he saw... Uh, how Nineveh had responded to Jonah's message, to his message. When God saw their deeds, that they turned from their wicked way, then God relented concerning the calamities which he had declared he would bring upon them, and did he did not do it. And so this greatly displeased Jonah, and he became angry. You see that in verse 1 of chapter 4? And so we can say, what on earth is wrong with this guy? God showed these pagans of Nineveh undeserved mercy, yes, in that the whole city, from the king to the ordinary guy on the street, escaped his wrathful destruction. Like, after all, this promised to be another Sodom and Gomorrah going down here, you know. And we see that the people, upon Jonah's message, we saw that, they repented. What they did is they listened to his message and they believed the message of God's judgment. And they turned around, they turned from their sin and they turned toward God. That's what repentance is. And all this, this amazing work was done through a dodgy, bitter, antagonistic and prejudiced prophet. God used this unlikely hero as his instrument to bring about one of the most massive acts of divine grace in all of human history. Amazing, absolutely amazing. But if this was you, how might you have responded? Immediately when you saw God's work in Nineveh, you would think that Jonah would have, wow, let's go to the high centre and get the fastest camel on foot so I can hightail it back to Israel and tell them how massively God had worked through him in the city of Nineveh. You know, most missionaries would, would, would be bursting at the seams to come back and tell their commending churches of God's grace and action like this, if it happened. But Jonah? No way. No way. What did it do? It greatly displeased Jonah and he became angry, the text says. Now, the word translated, it displeased, could equally be translated, he displeased. Now, in which case, the sentence would read, he, but he displeased Jonah exceedingly. And so what that means is, it can be understood like this. The one who displeases Jonah is God. That's what the text is saying here. The, one who had, the God who had relented from disaster that he would visit upon Nineveh. He displeased Jonah. And the Hebrew text here is, is very, very vivid and can be literally read this way. What God did was evil to Jonah as a great wrong. That's how vivid it is. 
So Jonah sees the Lord's heart of compassion and it exposes his own heart and he expresses this in the strongest language possible. What have you done in Nineveh is evil and wrong, Lord, and I am angry big time. This unthinkable and strange response is what Jonah expresses in his prayer, by the way, in verse 2. Oh Lord, is this not what I said when I was set yet in my own country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Jonah really here exposes his heart in three ways. And firstly, he exposes his heart in that he tries to justify himself. He tries to make excuses for his former disobedience. Lord, he says, this is the exact reason for my action in fleeing to Tarshish. I knew this would be the outcome. That is why I fled from your presence. That's what Jonah is saying. Folks, ever since Adam in the Garden of Eden, Eden replied to the Lord as to why he had partaken of the fruit. What did Adam say? Lord, the woman that you gave me, remember? The woman that you gave me, she gave me the fruit of the tree. In other words, trying to justify his disobedience, trying to justify his sin and shove the blame. You know, ever since Adam done that, ever since the fall, we all to some degree or other, have become expert at trying to justify and make excuses for our blatant sin and disobedience to God. And this is exactly what Jonah is doing here. He puts the blame back on God. How terrible is that? How terrible is that? As believers, as those who trust Jesus Christ, you know, we're not exempt from this lesson here. Even as believers, we can cover up sin. We can, even treating sin indifferently or ignoring it or just pushing it under the carpet is kind of doing exactly what Jonah did here. I can handle it. It's really not my fault. As believers, we're given instruction in the well-known scriptures in 1 John 1.9. We need to confess our sin to God alone, who is what? Who is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's what we must do. And I believe regularly, daily. We're never to try and justify our sin. But something else Jonah does, he tries to rebut God's sovereign mercy. What he does here is he places himself and his hatred of the Ninevites as being worthy qualities to follow over and above God's compassionate sovereign mercy. That's what he does. And Jonah does this by the oldest trick in the book, as old as Satan himself, I might say. Jonah uses truth about God to bolster his own prejudiced, unmerciful heart. You see that? And so just like Satan did, remember, in, to Jesus in the wilderness, he used God's word, Jonah did and Satan did, he uses God's word in a twisted way to bolster his evil plan. Satan used God's word in a way that would attempt to interrupt God's plan of salvation alone, through Jesus Christ alone. And so Jonah was doing exactly the same here. He, again, used scripture. 
probably thinking of Exodus chapter 34, verse 6, and it says, I, I know you are, I know who you are, God, and I'll use this in contemporary language. This is what Jonah was saying. I know who you are, God. I know exactly who you are. I knew it, I knew it, I knew it. That because you are a compassionate and gracious and slow to anger, abundant in loving kindness, and the one who turns from bringing calamity, I knew you would do this. Why on earth did you bother calling me to do what I've done if this was your plan all the time? I just knew you would go soft on those pagan, undeserving sinners. That's what Jonah was saying. That's what Jonah was saying. You see, he pitted his own ideas, his own heart of hatred and prejudice against all the sovereign will and compassionate heart of God. And folks, he came up, might I say, a big time loser. He really did. But let's just have a pause here. Push the pause button. Are we ever like that? Do we do anything, anything like this at all? Let's be open and honest here. Search your hearts. Our hearts are exposed before the Lord this morning. Do some evaluation. Do we ever allow our secret little prejudices dictate the terms of our engagement with people? Do we ever? I would suggest that happens far too often. Do we ever allow these things to dictate the terms of engagement with people who are made just like us in the image of God who may be different. People who may be different socially, who may be different intellectually, who may be different ethnically, who may be different financially. Or maybe people who have hurt us in the past and have been so unloving to us. How do we treat them? Do we pit our own ideas and our own agendas in our own circumstances, against the heart of God towards those people? Do we ever refer to people in derogatory terms? It's so easy to do. It comes to the fore so much. Do we ever prefer one people group over another? May it never be, folks. May it never be. God's heart is what? God's heart is one of no partiality. We're told that in Romans chapter, chapter 2 and verse 11. For there is no partiality with God. That's what it says. But Jonah, he had heaps of it. He had heaps of partiality. And he made no bones about expressing it. Just like the whole nation of Israel, which by the way, as we've already discussed, Jonah represented the whole nation of Israel had partiality. But at this heart expose, Jonah really hit a wall. He really did. This was big time deep depression time for Jonah. This bitterness here was so deep. It was so deep in him. Look at verse 3. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. You see that? He really hit a wall. You see, in Jonah's anger thus far, first of all, he tries to justify himself or justify his sin. And then he tries to rebut God's sovereign mercy. And now he really hits the pit. He seeks death. Suicide is his game plan once again. Once again. 
In other words, Lord, kill me right now as I can't stand the idea of those pagan Assyrians being converted. Pretty plain, straight up front. That's what he says. Poor old Jonah was facing his worst nightmare here. Imagine having a dirty, rotten attitude like that, folks. Imagine it. Jonah's attitude attitude was, was bad at the beginning and here at the end it's still majorly bad. He hadn't seemed to learn too much all through the experiences that God had taken him through. And he was certainly far from being more and more like Yahweh, his God. Remember at the beginning? At the very beginning he wanted to be killed. Remember that? He came up out of his slumber and knew that he knew that this was a divine storm that God had appointed and, and he was as guilty as sin. He knew it was all his. Throw me overboard, he said. Throw me overboard. He commanded the sailors. He wanted to die rather than go back to Nineveh. The Lord intervened. He sent a storm, yes. He appointed a fish. You see, he did not let this disobedient prophet have his way. Jonah survived miraculously, as we have seen. And now he's back in Nineveh, and even after experiencing all the miraculous and all God's gracious mercy, he wants to die again. He's full of prejudice, full of pride, and he cannot tolerate the magnitude of God's grace being poured out on on this pagan nation. And he wants nothing, absolutely nothing to do with this. He would rather be dead than to see these people converted to God. Such was the prejudiced, uptight condition of Jonah's heart. Jonah's problem and God's solution, we see this in verses 4 to 11. Obviously, Jonah's take on his preaching mission to Nineveh was evidently a little bit like, yes, okay, 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 I get the message. I will do this as you have commanded, Lord. But after his preaching mission was over, Jonah noted all this outpouring of God's mercy that brought about repentance and he was angry with God, as we've discussed, because he believed that blessing belongs to Israel, not to pagans. That's what Jonah thought. And then God intervenes and asks a rhetorical question. He doesn't expect Jonah to answer this question, but he asks a rhetorical question in verse 4. Do you have reason, good reason to be angry? In other words, Jonah, is there reason at all for your anger here? We see from the text that there's no answer from Jonah. No answer at all. He's all undone here, can we say. He kind of falls to pieces, as it were, it seems. The reason this simple question exposed his blatant prejudice. Jonah's response was, response was not in words, but it was in action. This is what he did. This is what he decided to do. I'll just hang about for a while and wait and see what happens to Nineveh. That's what his response was. So according to verse 5, Jonah leaves the city in an easterly direction. And he finds a good vantage point so he can look down on the city and then he builds a comfy shelter for himself and hangs out. Jonah didn't even have the nous and the faith to stay in the city of Nineveh. Imagine that. In 40 days, Nineveh will be destroyed and then he sees all this repentance happening 
Wouldn't it be a good thing for Nona to stay there and just comfort and counsel and encourage the, the new believers in God? But no, 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 no. You see Jonah's heart? I'm getting out of here. So he leaves the city in an east direction and he builds this dodgy shelter. You see, what Jonah hoped for was that his message of God's judgment would become a reality. That's what he really hoped for. And he wanted to be out of Nineveh when God lit this place up. Because that's what he hoped and believed that God would do. He's hoping that God's mercy will be reversed. Oh yes, those pagans went through the motions of repentance, he was thinking. Yes, they looked all good on the outside. But, but surely, he was thinking, it was not real. It was all show and no dough. It was hypocritical. That's what was Jonah's hope. And because of that, God will kill them all. He really hoped for. And Jonah decided that if I just sit here and wait, I'll get a bird's eye view of God in action. But as he was thinking that, man, it's hot in here, he said. I'll build me a shelter. And so he does. He settled himself in this dodgy, inadequate shelter that he built and waited for the duration, for the obviously the end of the 40 days to come up. But I really love what happens next here. Because here he was sitting in this dodgy shelter, this inadequate shelter, and in the heat of the blazing sun, and he was made somewhat uncomfortable. And I really love what happens in verse 6. This is what it says. So the Lord God appointed a plant and it grew up over Jonah to be a shade over his head and to deliver him from his discomfort. And Jonah was extremely happy about the plant. I really love that. That's amazing, right? Here is an angry at God guy who becomes extremely happy. First time you ever read about Jonah being happy in this book, by the way. Here he is, he becomes extremely happy about his own comfort. I'm suggesting that this guy was totally self-absorbed. He was full of himself. As we might say, down under. But we need to ask, what is God doing here? What on earth was God doing? After all, Jonah, we might say, does not deserve any more grace from God. He's at his full, surely. So here is Jonah being cooked by the sun and waiting for God to change his mind and incinerate Nineveh and God then provides for Jonah's comfort an effective shade tree which makes Jonah heaps happy. Talk about grace upon grace upon grace, though. Where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. Folks, Jonah is about to get an object lesson here. He's about to get an object lesson. You see, God had appointed a plant to grow and now he appoints a worm to attack the plant so that by the next day the plant was useless. As I'm thinking about this and doing like Jordan was doing, just reading and rereading and thinking and interesting, I decided... That had to be a decent sized shade tree or a vine or whatever it might be. It had to be a pretty decent size. And so if that was a decent sized tree, man, and maybe my warped mind thinking, but that had to be a pretty super sucker sort of a worm, one worm to eat that tree, right? But God appointed it. God appointed that worm and it did severe damage. But God's not finished. 
with his sovereign appointing yet. He's not finished with his sovereign appointing yet. On the next day, the shade tree withered and then God really poured it on. The next appointing, the next divine appointing was that he, he appointed a scorching east wind. And this is a wind that was, they even had a special name for it. It was straight off the land. A bit like we get from the northerly wind. You know what that's like? It comes in there and man, you sort of... The sun and wind, which was such ferocity on Jonah, it was so severe that his head hurt, poor lad. His head hurt. He became faint, it says. And he begged, wait for it, here it is, here it is, with all his soul to die. Do you see that? I have good reason to be angry, even to death, was Jonah's reply to God about the withered plant. And Jonah so loved that plant. And here is the third time he wanted to die. You kind of feel like saying at this stage as you read the story, look Jonah, three strikes out. Three strikes and you're out. So for goodness sake, just die, won't you? Die! Well, this is where the Lord teaches Jonah a lesson. It's a lesson that we all need to learn, by the way. And so listen up here. I'm going to read these few verses again. The Lord said to Jonah, You had compassion on a plant for which you did not work, and which you did not cause to grow, which came up overnight and perished overnight, should I not have compassion on Nineveh, the great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know the difference between the right hand and the left hand, as well as many animals? The 120,000, by the way, it refers to children who are not old enough to understand or, or you know, they're little, little children. And so that's how we get the approximate 600,000 for the city. And also for your animal lovers, God loves animals. He mentioned them here and he mentioned them back there further and where they're repenting. He created them after all, right? For a purpose. So here is Jonah, full of contempt and, and self-centeredness and God asks his final unanswered question. He said, you had compassion on a plant to keep you comfortable and, and you have no compassion for eternal souls. Shouldn't I have compassion on Nineveh, that great city? Shouldn't I? Jonah wants to see God condemn a whole city to hell and at the same time, pers- same time personally enjoy his God-given comforts. What a man, like I mean to say. I don't have to tell you folks, this is one of the most perverse approaches to fellow man that I can think of. The question right at the end is never answered, as I said before. And, and that's where it ends. That's where the, narrative, the whole narrative of Jonah ends. No answer from Jonah. No repentance recorded, sad to say. And if he did say anything, may I suggest it would probably, let me die, let me die, let me die. Maybe. Rather than seeing God's compassion displayed. See, what this does and what this has done is it exposed Jonah's heart to God's heart. It exposed his sinfulness in the light and the expose of God's compassionate mercy. It exposed his heart so that Jonah could see that his heart was sorely wanting and so far from where it should be. I wonder if we have searched our own hearts this morning. You see, one great truth that we need to see is that God is a merciful God in this whole story, right? We must understand that. God is a merciful God. 
Now, Scripture tells us that, because Scripture tells us that all have sinned, Romans 3.23, all have sinned and come short of God's standard or God's glory. That means that in our sin, we are condemned and so we desperately need His mercy, folks. We do. If you're not a Christian, you desperately need God's, God's mercy because you're just like the unrepentant Ninevite who was in that city before that city repented. And God has promised through Moses and the Apostle Paul, we have Paul quotes Moses from Romans 9, God says, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. God is a merciful God. So can I suggest, please, this morning, line your own hearts with God's hearts this morning. And if you know and if you see and if you understand or if you have doubts and thinking that maybe that my heart is not governed at all by the plumb line of God's heart, it's governed by my own sinfulness, my own desires, my my own heart of sin. If it's governed that, you are desperately in need of God's mercy. You need to come to Jesus Christ because that's the only way that you will find and know the mercy of God. You need to see that your sin has been dealt with fully at the cross. You need to understand that your sin, by faith, was placed upon Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ in mercy and compassion and love died for you. Sin was punished. Do you see that? So in closing, this series, as we have been through it, asks a question. We can ask the question, what have we learned from this book? It's on the surface about Jonah, right? We can think it's all about Jonah, but really underneath it's all about God. God, God, as we've already said, is the ultimate hero of the story. He is the sovereign creator and in charge of, of all of creation's actions. All of creation's actions. He's in charge. It is God, who remember, who started the storm. He prepared the fish. Who prepared the fish to swallow Jonah. Who made sure that Jonah survived. It's God who, who had to fris, fish throw up Jonah on the dry land. It is God who then calms the sea. Who caused the plant to grow. Who sends a worm. Who whips up the east wind. It is God who does all this. He has, folks, power over creation. Wonderful, amen. Even the pagan sailors recognised God as creator. And in all this, in all this, as we think of the whole story of Jonah, the only person who resists God in this whole story is Jonah. The sailors didn't resist God. The Ninevites don't resist God. Only the prophet of God. That's a lesson. Just because you're a Christian doesn't mean to say that you can't resist God. There are lessons here for unbelievers and believers. We can quench the Holy Spirit. We can grieve the Holy Spirit. We can resist God. As soon as we go against His Word, as soon as we treat God's Word indifferently, we are resisting God. Now you think that this would rule Jonah out of God's business full stop, right? 
He was this guy with all his prejudices, etc. And he's the one who resists God in the story. You'd think it would rule him out full stop of being God's servant. But here's another point that we can heed to and be greatly encouraged. As individuals and as a church family, God is in the business. This is something else that we can learn from here. God is in the business of doing great things for his glory through his people from a human perspective who are flawed and should be rejected. And we're all flawed and should be rejected for some reason or other, right? Every single one of us, we're all flawed. Well, God is in the business of using repentant, flawed people. Second, we learn that God is a supreme judge. God's message to Nineveh was a message of promise, wrath and judgment for their sin and wickedness. You know what? God is the same yesterday, today and forever. We're told that in Hebrews 13 verse 8. God will not and cannot tolerate sin. It must be dealt with. Either you suffer its consequences in eternal hell or you believe the gospel which is Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3. And believing in that, we have our sins forgiven. So it's a message of judgment. The third thing that we learn about God is that He is a loving, gracious Saviour. His loving kindness is not limited. It's not limited. It's not limited by our prejudices. It's not limited by our pride, our indifference, or even our plain stubbornness. Also, his loving kindness and compassion is not limited to good people, by the way. He doesn't only have mercy on good people. It's extremely wide, his mercy is. It reaches right out to the hearts of brutal, violent and idolatrous pagans. It really does, as we have seen to the people of Nineveh. What an amazing gospel is found in the story of Jonah. An amazing gospel. The Creator is sinned against and in grace and mercy He warns about impending judgment because of that sin and then with great compassion and love He completely forgives those who genuinely repent and embrace Him. And the same thought in Romans 5.8 God demonstrates His own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners Christ died for us. How true that is, amen? Oh, the width of God's mercy the depth and width of God's mercy that we see in this story. And just end with this last verse in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 4, that God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us. How can we, folks, how can we who have experienced this matchless, unbelievable mercy of God be anything less than merciful to others? If your repentance is genuine, because God is merciful, you will align your heart with His and you will also be merciful. May we reflect God's heart of mercy in carrying out the good news of salvation, the gospel, to those who are bound in sin and are in desperate need of salvation. Shall we bow in prayer? Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. For Father, your word is all-powerful. And we're told that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ.
and we're commanded to preach your word. And so, Father, we do this with humility this morning and as those who are listeners, help us to hear and even the preacher himself help me to take these wonderful truths because, Lord, I alone am also not exempt from so many of these errors and sinfulnesses that Jonah entered into. So, Lord, help us all to understand our need. If we're not saved here, if we're not belonging to the, if we don't belong to Christ, help us to see that there's only one way of salvation. And God extends his mercy to us who are stubborn. And so, Father, help us to see the truth of the gospel and uh, be receptive of it. May your spirit work in us and uh, regenerate us and bring us to, to life and repentance and trust in God. In Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.